Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. We're going to finish our revival series this week. Uh, this is week five. We've been talking about revival and, and, and kind of what is it, what brings it on, what spurs it into uh, existence, how do we... How do we actually hinder it? And then we've talked a personal anecdote or two on, on what does personal revival look like. And today what we want to do, as we talk about revival, we, we've, we've defined it as a fresh outpouring of the Spirit. I want to just zoom in on one central aspect of our faith. Because sometimes we get into this idea, we get into these peripheral ideas of, of uh, I'm all about revival. It's all I think about to pray about. I want this fresh outpouring. It's, and that's a great thing. But sometimes we get excited about ministry's causes or, or pieces of our faith and we lose the centrality of what really matters. And so what we're going to do is, is go back to what is central to not only our daily existence, but to revival itself. And so today we're going to be talking about Jesus' blood, which let's acknowledge in 2023 is a little weird that um, we're supposed to be modern, sophisticated people talking about sociology and psychology, we're blending that in with science, and we're talking and bringing in theology, and we're going to make it winsome, and everybody's going to leave feeling good about things, and I think you're going to leave feeling good about things, but we have to talk about what's central to our faith, and it's an ancient faith that's rooted in the blood of the Savior. I mean, we have self-driving cars, and apparently there's AI that could have written this sermon in 11 seconds and probably delivered it faster than I'm about to. And so the idea that we're going to spend the next say 15 or so minutes just talking about blood and sacrifice feels a little anachronistic. It feels a little off. But we get far afield and we get complicated and we forget what is simple and what is true. And at the heart of every revival is the cross of Christ. So we're going to go back to that today. We're going to go way back to that today. And we're going to start in Leviticus chapter 17. Put it on the screen. You can read it with me. It says, for the life of a creature is in the blood. I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Way back before Jesus had walked on the earth, God had made clear that there was atonement in blood, that blood sacrifice was the way that sins would be forgiven. So we can go even um, a little further back to Abram. Abram had been promised all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Later he gets promised that his descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. He's been in Egypt, he's been in central Israel, he's he's split land in chapter 14 with his nephew Lot, and he's just kind of making his way through. He's he's rescued Lot from certain destruction as as the armies are going back and forth, and they've made some enemies here and there, and so we pick it up in chapter 15, and this is what the Bible says. It says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. It said, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward, But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? The one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will have to be my heir. And then the word of the Lord came to him. He said, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. So he took him outside and he said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. 
Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him his righteousness. And he also said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur and the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I'll gain possession of it? Okay, why are we here? Abram is childless. He's getting older. His wife was with him, also getting older. He has this promise from God about the land and his many descendants. They'll be as numerous as the stars in the sky. To which Abram says, yeah, but how? But how? And it's interesting, if you look at verse 2 and 3, if you went back and read through it, you'd see that Abram says something, and there's no response. And so it says Abram says another thing. And the Hebrew construction of that means, like, basically Abram is asking a question and getting the silent treatment from God. So he kind of pivots and asks it a different way. The Hebrew implies he got no answer. And so he says, basically, how can this be? A lot like that tone. How can this be? No. So then he restates the facts. God says, look at the stars. And Abraham believes God and it's credited to him as righteousness. And yet he's still curious. How? How can my descendants claim this land if they don't exist because I don't have kids? Abram was ready to leave everything to his servant because he has no children. So God takes it up a notch. God basically says, I'm not going to explain how this is going to happen necessarily, not at this point. But what I will do, God says, is I'm going to make you a formal promise. I'm going to make you a formal covenant. Like, this is God, you know, in our modern world, this is people, if you know, you're like, oh, are they dating? And you're there, yeah, they're dating. And that's one thing. If you heard that your friends are dating, okay. If you hear your friends are engaged, you're like, new level of commitment. If you hear your friends are married, you go, oh, that's a whole new level. So, so this is like going from dating to marriage pretty quickly, where God is saying, I'm making you a promise, and I know you don't believe me, and I know you think like we're just starting this conversation, and maybe I'm not responding the way you like, but let me just show you how serious I am. A covenant, a promise, requires two people. That's why when we do a wedding up here, we'll have one person say, I do, and then we'll go to the other, and they have a chance to run at that point. Usually they stick around. They also say, I do, and then all of a sudden, because they've both promised in the covenant, we have a marriage, each committing to the other. So Genesis 15, verse 9. So the Lord said to Abram, he said, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him. They cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. And then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. I mean, this is getting dark real fast. God makes instructions, and Abram knows, okay, clearly what's happening is we're making a covenant promise here. So Abram goes and cuts them in half. This is a traditional blood path covenant. This is what it would look like in a little bit of a rendering, okay? Like, not real appetizing, but you take the animals in the, the promise, and you slice them in half and bleed them out into a center uh, channel, and from there, it gets even more interesting. This might happen. This is for pretty serious promises. You wouldn't do this if you're like agreeing to put up a new fence between you and your neighbor and you're going to split the cost. You probably just shake on it. But this is like a royal decree or you're buying land. Sometimes for a marriage, you would do this. And what happens is the father and the prospective son-in-law would each walk through the blood. The, the lesser party, the one asking kind of the bigger favor here, would walk first. So in that scenario, the son-in-law walks through the blood first. And then he's asking for the daughter's hand, and then the father would walk through as well. 
And, and what this does, what this is, is each is making a promise by walking through the blood of saying, if I fail on my side of the promise, let this happen to me. May my blood be spilled. May I be torn in two. That's how serious a promise this is. This is not just a handshake agreement. This is not a signed contract. This is, if I fail at my side, may I be torn in two and bled out just the same. The difference these days, this is why this is sort of foreign to us, when I called my prospective father-in-law to ask for his daughter's hand in marriage, I kind of just told him what I was going to do. Called him. It was like a Tuesday at 2.30, you know. Whatever. Didn't warn him. Hey, so I'm going to probably ask your daughter to marry me today. Just needed you to know that. He was stunned. Caught him off guard. That was the plan. And he said, I, I, uh, okay. All right. And I said, great. Congratulations to me. See you later. You know, hung up. That's how we would do it. Back in the day, he would have said, well, I know I'm four hours away, but I'll go get the goat and the heifer and the pigeons and the doves and come on out and don't bring shoes. And it would have been a whole different ordeal. But think about the the gravity of this. Imagine the gravity, the difference between me calling my prospective father-in-law and just being like, hey, what do you think? And walking through sticky, messy, visceral, a blood path. Literally taking your shoes off and making your way through the blood of these animals. That's a thing. It conveys a certain seriousness. You can't separate it. It's, for us, a promise is, is happening here. Promises are the pinky promises, but they're happening in our heads, right? This is where my promise lives. And for an ancient Israeli, for an ancient Jew, their promise is happening with their full self. They're recognizing that my whole self is invested. So Abram has now laid this out and says he's waiting for God. The reason it says that these birds of prey have come in, he's set this out and now the vultures have shown up. He's waiting long enough that the vultures have come to pick at the carcass. He's having to shoo them off because he's done the thing he's supposed to do. And once again, he's like, God, where are you? God arrives. And, and if they were going to do this the way you would expect, Abram would walk through the blood path first, right? He's the lesser party. But Abram doesn't walk through the blood. We pick up in verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And the Lord said to him, Know for certain that 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. And you, however, you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a great covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Mentioning the tribes. Abram doesn't pass through. Abram doesn't walk the blood path. So what is his role in this promise? It's a covenant promise. Two people have to agree. Abram never walks the path. God makes a covenant promise with no specific role for Abram other than to be fulfilled through the promise. What kind of promise is only a one-way promise? God says, I alone can keep this promise. You can't even keep the promise we're going to make. I can keep this promise. So God 
symbolized in the smoking fire pot. God says, I go before you. I alone can go before you. I alone will shed blood to see it come to fruition. If this doesn't come to fruition, you'll see me shed blood. God goes before Abram to establish the covenant. So then consider how the Israelites, they escaped the slavery that was predicted. The sea splits and God goes first. God goes before them as they cross the Red Sea. Consider how the Israelites enter the promised land as the Jordan River splits and God leads them across. Consider how the children of God are redeemed. The God in the form of Jesus goes before us on the cross. The he alone is torn. Another blood covenant that we have no part in except to reap the reward. Jesus alone walks a blood path. The same sort of blood promise that was made in the ancient days, Jesus makes his own sort of blood promise. This promise is made to you and to me, that all who might believe might be sealed in him, might be saved in him, might experience eternity with him. So just as God alone sealed the promise with Abraham, God alone seals the promise of salvation with you and I. And what was the point of the promise? Remember the point of the promise. Why do we split the animals? What's the point of walking through the blood? What's being communicated there? The point of the promise is if, if I fall short in any way on this promise, let me be torn asunder. Let me be bled out. So in our covenant with Jesus, who falls short? The miraculous thing about the cross of Christ is that in the covenant he's making with us, we are the ones who fall short. We are the ones who have let him down. We are the ones who can't fulfill our part of the bargain. And yet Jesus is the one who sacrificed. Jesus is the one who takes on the blood covenant promise. God covers the shortfall. God initiates and fulfills. And so you and I are like Abram in this. That we don't see the path to salvation. We can't quite figure out, God, how are you going to make this work? What's my role in this? How, how are you going to do this through me? We don't see a path to salvation because if you and I look at it honestly and rationally, we're never going to get it right. If the way into the presence of God is perfection, then you and I are never going to make it there. We can try. We can work harder. We can white-knuckle our way through, but we don't ever quite get it right. It's never enough. So the Bible says that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so without the blood path of Jesus, without the sacrifice of Jesus, we don't experience the kingdom of heaven. We never know its revival. We never know the coming alive again that comes with finding Christ and living through him. This matters because as we pray for revival, we are praying for something external to crash in upon our world. And yet there's something profoundly internal that's happening at the same time. The danger of our days in our culture is that we would practice a Christless Christianity. That's the danger of our days. That we would be a church practicing Christless Christianity. That we go through the motions. That we're generally sort of nice to people. That we say we believe a thing. But generally try to live inoffensive lives. We aim to be good. We follow the golden rule but we alter our language and we alter our message. We try to be culturally irrelevant. We try not to offend if we can help it. We like the idea of the Bible in public schools, but that seems a little controversial. I don't want to get in that fight. We like the idea of praying for our schools, of of walking through the hallway and getting to have access to principals and teachers and lifting them up through prayer, which we actually believe works. That could be awkward, or that could be weird, or I might see my neighbor and then they're going to think I'm strange, and so I'll I'll just stay back. Compromising the gospel doesn't bring us life. 
Watering down the gospel doesn't bring us life. And when we remind ourselves what does bring us life, it emboldens us to live the life we're called to. The only hope we have is in Jesus. Crucified and resurrected, revival is nothing without the blood. We came alive again because of the blood of Christ. It starts there, it ends there, and so you and I have to be rooted in this idea that the cross is central to our existence, that we have to be rooted in this idea that every morning when I wake up and before my feet hit the floor, I'm thinking of the cross of Christ and the resurrection, and I'm grateful and I'm thankful, and I'm awash in that beautiful sacrifice so that it emboldens me to go out into the world and live the life I've been called to live. Revival is nothing but the blood. So we're going to do communion in a moment. We do communion every week, and sometimes we take it for granted, and sometimes we do it as an obligation, or it's just a rote thing we got used to. It's a habit. But we don't approach the communion table because it's cute. We approach the communion table because it's central, because every week it's our invitation to be reminded that at the cross of Christ, everything changes. That revival happens, it starts at the cross of Christ. So we'll take the bread and we'll look at it and it's broken and that represents what? That the body of Christ was broken for us. And we dip it in the cup, which it's just grape juice, but it represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. It represents that his body was broken and the blood sacrifice made so that you and I would know ultimate freedom, we would know ultimate beauty, we would know ultimate eternity. communion table represents that he goes alone before us. And having done his part, he then invites us to join him. That's the beauty of it. The communion table says, I've already done the work. It's the fire pot going through the pieces. I've already done the work. Abram, now you just enjoy the spoils. Just recognize what I've done. Enjoy. Your descendants will number like the stars in the sky. When we come to the communion table, it's our recognition that Jesus has done the work of bringing us alive again. And his invitation to us is simply to join him at the table, to recognize his beauty, to remember his sacrifice, and to live the life. Hebrews 9.12 says, He did not enter, speaking of Jesus, by means of blood of goats and calves. That's the old way. He entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Jesus' blood obtains our eternal redemption so we might boldly proclaim him, boldly live him out, that we might pray for revival, but we have to make our own commitment. It's not unlike the membership commitment. We make our own commitment to the revival happening in our community. We make the commitment to not be silent in the world we live in, to not be silent with our faith, and that doesn't mean you need to stand on the street corner with a bullhorn yelling at people. It means you live your love out loud. Revival doesn't come in hushed whispers. It roars in like a lion. Revival wallops you like a mighty wind. Revival envelops a people. The Holy Spirit surrounds a church. It overwhelms a nation. But the Holy Spirit doesn't come apart from the pursuit of Jesus and the pursuit of the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom is not ushered in without the blood of the cross. So today at the table, my invitation is that you would consider how God has gone before you, that life is in the blood, and what is he inviting you into? For some of you, you go, you know what, I've been living a Christless Christianity and I need to really follow the the true Jesus. I need to accept the fullness of that. Come to the table and accept the fullness of his invitation.
Some of you are here and you go, you know what, I don't do communion very often or I don't think about it kind of this depth. And your invitation is to remember that Jesus goes before you in all things. And now he's inviting you to join him in his work, join him in his mission, join him in his ministry. Join him in his mercy. That though you and I were once far off, though you and I were once a wretch and a sinner and an enemy, that you and I who had so many mistakes, who had hit every pothole, who had run into every hurdle, that you and I, through the blood of Jesus, through the grace of Jesus, through the mercy of a sacrificial Savior, you and I come in a brand new way, made clean, made whole, revived, and awakened that we might help others find him as well. Amen?